Hello and welcome to Horse Race Politics. My name is Dr. Matthew Wall and I'm a political scientist at Swansea University and I'm joined by my colleagues. Hi, my name is Dr. Elena Kilby and I'm a lecturer in journalism in the Department of Media and Communication at Swansea University. And I'm Dr. Richard Thomas, senior lecturer in journalism in the same department. So we're all academics specialised in the study of campaigns and political communication. And we've created this podcast to share our analysis of the 2020 US presidential election campaign in real time as it unfolds, using information from political gambling markets to keep score. So the podcast will drop each Friday running into the vote and it'll bring you up to speed with the state of the race. And it'll help you to filter out the noise of the campaign, focusing on the stories, trends and moments that really matter. So this week, the candidates met for the final presidential debate of the campaign in Nashville. And uh, this took place overnight here in the UK, but we're uh, up bright and early with our with our first reactions to it, as well as, I suppose, those of the uh, gambling markets. Although this was the last major national campaign event for the candidates to set out their stalls to the American electorate, there was relatively little to chew over in terms of substantive policy. Uh, We unpacked the policy versus horse race dynamics of campaign coverage and try and explain why there seems to be so little interest in covering or consuming news about the future policy agenda of the men vying for the world's most powerful political office. Uh, Okay, so as I said, we're all up early, probably before our cornflakes here, uh, with the debate was at, I think, 2 a.m. UK time. Maybe, Elena, you can start off by telling uh, our listeners a little bit how how the uh, event unfolded and, and what took place. Yeah, well, I got up bright and early um, around about 4.30 this morning to watch it. So I've just kind of gone gone through the kind of key themes, which is essentially what happens with every debate. There are normally six topics and each candidate has two minutes to reply to it. And then they kind of debate for two minutes after that. Um, So the debate started with one of the most important topics that is on everybody's lips at the moment. Maybe um, the Republicans would prefer that it wasn't. And that's COVID. Um, So... Trump started with talking about how the spikes have gone, how there's a vaccine that's going to be out before Christmas. Um, <laughs> how <laughs> it's always um, just how, around the corner of that vaccine, huh? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, how the problem is essentially going away, and Biden's retort to that was returning to the, the key issue, which is you know the amount of deaths. And also some some instances of, of discussion around policy. I know you mentioned that you know this 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 was um, an issue that came up in the analysis of the debate. Um, the fact that Trump has no plan, um, how they, they're going to be national standards in terms of opening up the country, schools and businesses, etc. Then uh, the, the conversation went on to national security. This started with Biden. He was talking about Russia and Chinese interference in the elections and how he would be unwilling to take anything from Putin. And then we have Trump saying, again, retorting with, well, Biden, you've taken money from the Ukraine, you've taken money from Russia, etc. Then discussions around North Korea and Trump's relationship with the leader there. Then we went on to the economy and healthcare. And I think, you know, there's some key points that have been raised about the lack of discussion around policy there. Uh, Trump talks about terminating Obamacare and coming up with a better healthcare plan. Again, we're still not really sure what that is and what that looks like. And then I think that was the first time I heard him get cut off from the mic, actually. So he did pretty yeah. well to kind of keep within the two they were minutes. Much, they were much more disciplined, even, yeah. even in the open conversation weren't they then yeah than the previous time yeah it was very noticeable from what i've seen this week looking at some of the, the satire shows and news analysis of, of of the first debate is you know i think the people that were training trump for, for this last debate 
made him, you know, come across a lot more softer than, than the mm-hmm. kind of brutish approach that, that he used in the first debate. So he was a lot more sedate in comparison to the first one that we saw. But again, returning back to the economy and healthcare, there was Biden mentioned this idea of putting in a public option, you know, refuting mm-hmm. some of the things that uh, Trump mentioned about Obamacare. But again, he kind of hit home with this idea that, okay, I've got this, you know, this public option, but Trump doesn't have a plan. So, you know, I can see what some of the people who are analyzing this event were kind of very much in the right frame of mind with that is the fact that there there was no kind of key discussion about wider issues around healthcare. Then he went, they went on to talk about economy and jobs and um, the relief bill. Trump wants to approve it. And then there's this kind (laughs) of discussion back and forth between him blaming Pelosi. And then you have Biden saying, well, no, it's actually the Republicans fault and they're not letting that get through. And I just don't think people are really interested in that conversation. I mean, this debate about the relief fund has been going on for such a long time now. And Mm. you just still have this kind of partisan bickering back and forth. So I don't think much really came of that. Discussion around minimum wage was another and why Biden thinks that is important and how Trump thinks that should be a state option. And then we have discussion around immigration and child separation and race in America. So I I think that was the kind of key themes that were discussed within the debate. And I'll let Richard go on to talk now maybe about uh, the media reaction to that in this short space of time. I mean, as usual, both both sides claiming victory. Something that most people agree on, though, it was a more ordered affair, um, Mm -hmm. well moderated by Kirsten Welker. Chris, Chris Wallace of Fox News actually moderated the first debate he jumped in and said he was jealous. He would have liked to have moderated the debate <laughs> that didn't have hundreds of interruptions. So most agree that it was better than the first one. Um, mm-hmm. Some people pointing out that it clashed with a big football game on the TV, which which might have drawn away some of the, the audience. Mm. Before the event, one commentator described Trump as having a sort of WrestleMania approach to these debates where you need to bully your opponent into submission. But no one's really saying that in the reaction afterwards. I mean, the BBC, for example, has said the president very visibly dialed down the volume. It made him a much more effective debater. Yeah. Newsweek said that Trump stayed cool and composed, and that was his first and most important objective. Few people calling it in his favor. Andy Bell, Channel 5 in the UK's political editor, said Trump got the better of Biden, less aggressive, more coherent. Um, His opponent struggled to nail his points. There's some very visceral anti-Trump sentiment, of course, noticeably today, particularly in the independent. They say forced into periods of silence, Trump was unable to display the full vastness of his incoherent booing. <laughs> Another independent columnist said for the first time, Biden really looked like someone you could vote for enthusiastically, and Trump looked like a man who knows he's lost terrifyingly consequential bet. Did they really um, say that about Biden? Who said that again? Yeah, that was the independent. Wow. I don't agree. So some some are being critical of Biden, actually, for not fighting fire with fire when faced with all of those allegations about corruption in his family. He spent a lot of time defending the stuff about his son's emails, didn't he? Yeah. Some people say Mr. Trick. Others say it's indicative of his unwillingness to take the fight into the gutter. I think some of the the live commentary was really good. I know Elena was taken with the fact-checking during the the event, I, I was too. I think that's really holding power to account in a tangible way. We all criticise the BBC, don't we, at times? So I think when they get it right, we should say so. Mm. Uh, CNN fact-checker Daniel Dale 
he says that neither side sort of came out with it uh, with flying colours in terms of the fact-checking. He said Biden was imperfect. <laughs> Trump, as usual, was a serial liar, he said, um, <laughs> and he delivered a bombardment of dishonesty. So who won? The Blaze, a pro-Republican news brand, they're calling it just under 30,000 votes in their snap poll. They're calling it Trump 96%. <laughs> An interesting result, not reflected in too many other places. It it reminds me of the time when I was playing in a football match and we lost 23-0, but my mum said I was man of the match. <laughs> so, uh, the whole trade element to this, three snap polls, CNN, data progress, US politics, all of those say that Biden was victorious, uh, seemingly by about that 10% margin that's becoming quite familiar now. So Newsweek are saying, you know, if the polls are right, it was Joe Biden's debate to lose and he doesn't look like he did. So you could, I think, argue that Biden didn't lose any ground, neither mm -hmm. did Trump. Does it matter? We've made the point before, doesn't it? We yeah. think there's probably, depending on who you listen to, between 46 and 50 million people have already voted out of the 130 that voted last time, 2016. So, you know, the swing voter audience might be as low as 4 million. Uh -huh. CNN, CNN did a focus group after the event of 11 people. Uh, nine said Biden won. Two say it was a draw. None of them called it for Trump. But it's, it's 11 people, though. It's not yeah. 4 million. So I'm going to give the last word in the commentary to uh, Malika Jabali from The Guardian. She said... It took 45 minutes to address healthcare. It took an hour to talk about economic stimulus. Less than 10 minutes were dedicated to race. Nothing about policies to reduce racial disparities in unemployment, in essential work, COVID-19, and cases or small business closures. She said it's an indictment of the framing of the debate itself as much as it is the candidate. So I, say, I guess you could say, Matt and Elena, it was a score draw between the candidates but policy news, as usual, ended up being the loser. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a funny one because for me, like this showed up just how bad of a candidate Joe Biden is and how lucky of a candidate he is to have Donald Trump and coronavirus <laughs> and all these favorable <laughs> wins. The guy cannot remember any substantive fact to back up these key points that he's making. And like for me, I'm sitting there watching it, and I know what he what he what he wants to say, and he, you can see him; his eyes roll up a little bit, and he's trying to remember something, and then he just then he just can't. He is a terrible performer. I'm sorry. For me, like his little like his little uh, come on, you know when he says mm -hmm. that, yeah. Uh, my God. So I I I thought. I mean Trump Trump actually by by comparison was also as as you might expect poor. I found the actual sort of silencing mechanism and and the the perhaps more strict moderation kind of channeled Donald Trump into a slightly more coherent politician than when he uh, when he was when he was left to his own devices a little bit more in the first yeah, debate. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he was. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you were. I mean, in in a way, the, the last debate we were saying um, we were joking. It was kind of funny to watch, really. But it did make you wonder about the state of American democracy. This one was kind of boring to watch, but made you just so pessimistic about the future of American political elite. I mean, the, the standard of the candidates was so low. I, mm -hmm. I, I was, I, I, that's, that was my takeaway. In terms of the betting markets, I watched them um, very closely. 
The one in particular that I watched was Betfair, which is a very kind of responsive market. And they had Trump shading it in the sense that he went from being like about 30% likely to win at the start to about 33% likely at the end. So that's, you know, there's a lot of action on that market during the during the debate. And they had Trump shading it. And I, yeah, I, I sort of had him shading it too. I mean, Richard talked after the last debate about how it was a bit like the Irish rugby team in the sense that like you just try and wreck the game and hope, hope you win by the odd score. Um, this week, I thought Trump was a bit more Catanaccio, you know, with the Italian defensive style. Uh, and it, it will lead on to, I think, what we're going to talk about in the sense that he tried to run as if he were a complete political outsider. Right. Mm. So pretty much all he did was try and get Joe Biden to talk about his policy. Mm-hmm. And and then Trump re- responded with how bad that was. But it was actually, I, I thought, a reasonably effective strategy uh, in terms of the, just the gladiatorial contest. Trump had a kind of a, an impersonation of Joe Biden that, he, that he'd whip out. I thought he really caught him when uh, he said, oh, Joe, you've just looked into the camera and talked to the families. Like everyone knows that's what politicians do. I, you could see that <laughs> discomforted Biden. And then Biden, I think, misspoke about, um, about ending the oil industry in America, mm. like a, a, a presidential candidate. Mm. Uh, like what less than two weeks out from the vote says yeah. he wants to end the oil industry and he had to he had to he had to roll that back afterwards you could almost see the champagne corks popping in texas yeah <laughs> so 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 the the betting markets had it as a narrow uh trump win and you, you know you could you could give it a shout as a score draw as well richard i i totally agree but i suppose the bigger picture coming into it was donald trump needed to to change the game in his favor, and I don't think there were there were any significant momentum shifters. So listen, let's talk in about policy a little bit because, as you were saying, Elena, this was a more slightly more substantive focused discussion compared to the to the previous debate. <laughs> but like Richard, I know this is a kind of a core area of yours: the 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 nature of policy coverage versus horse racing in campaigns. And I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, yeah, about how how we understand those those kind of terms? Yeah, F- first of all, Matt. Before we do that, I just wanted to say, with your Italian footballing reference, you've brought in a level of sophistication that <laughs> I am just not used to with <laughs> with footballing references. We're looking into these themes, aren't we, one by one? And we we looked at opinion bowls being a good way to determine how the public's feeling, and bias, you know, is a good way to determine the balance within the coverage. So. When we look at the proportion of time and space that journalists are giving to policy issues, that helps us say something about the quality of the ca- of the coverage mm. and how valuable it is for citizens. So the alternative to these policy details is what we call the process frame or the horse race frame or the game mm-hmm. frame, lots of different names for it. And this is the stuff that concentrates on the on on the events, the incidents, the gaffes, the stunts the scandals, the polls, who's going to win and all of that. So it actually is the horse race in horse race politics. So we've talked before, haven't we, about all of those such incidents, very rich election for all of that stuff. Anything that involves Trump is going to be, isn't it? But it's not just the 2020 campaign where all of this other noise that isn't about policy seems to drown out everything else. There's a long established pattern whereby media privilege this sort of horse race framing. So in simple terms, as an analogy in the world that we live in, imagine someone came to review one of our lectures and the reports that they produced afterwards was about how useless 
we were with technology, what we were wearing, the sound of our voices, what the audience were doing when we were talking. But there was nothing in there about the actual content of the lecture. Mm. So that's actually what we mean by policy versus process. So we've worked on a number of elections in the UK. Elena and I worked on a big project in 2015. And Stephen Cushing and I wrote this book, Reporting Elections in 2018. And the sort of big finding from that book is wherever you go in the world, for whatever election, coverage of issues will be less than the coverage of the race. And in the UK on TV, we reckon, over the last 20 years or so, the balance is about 60-40 in favour of the horse race. In countries where there's public media, where we have things like public service broadcasting like we do in the UK, it'll be a bit better, but it's not a huge difference. There are some anomalies in 2017, for example. It flipped the other way, but that was a a sort of single-issue election, really, all about Brexit. So why, why does all this matter? Those people who study elections will suggest that if you're being starved of policy details, you can't be making your voting decision on things that are really likely to impact your life after election day. So a gaffe, a speech, a fleeting opinion poll, distraction of someone's private life, you know, those are going to be gone. The plans that the winner has for (laughs) your public services, the healthcare, crime, you know, that's going to live on and impact you for a long time afterwards. So Usually, there's nowhere where this distinction is greater than the US. In 2016, for example, in six days, the New York Times ran as many cover stories about Hillary Clinton's emails as they did about policy in the 69 days leading up to the election. Staggering. Mm. Across the three networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, 2016, 32 minutes of policy coverage. What, across the whole campaign? Across the whole campaign. Um, so, But it's not just about journalists failing. When we interviewed news editors in the UK, you know, there was a real sense that they were fed up with the fact that politicians would not answer questions about policy. Christina Squire's Channel 5 news editor said, the bottom line is they won't answer questions about the policies that we ask them about. So we can excuse journalists a bit, I think, on this. But I think in some, Matt, we say that the general consensus is that while we're not being served very well by politicians, journalists Mm. could probably do better. Because at the moment, we're being driven by news values. And elections, after all, there are these intensive periods that dominate coverage and our attention every four or five years. We spend much more of our time living with the consequences of elections rather than the elections ourselves. So it makes logical sense, I think, that we should be hearing a lot more about policies, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it certainly does. And oftentimes, uh, some policy comes in and then you're like, oh, that, that seems a bit strange. And the, in, this, in our case, the Conservative Party, you're like, no, it was in our manifesto. And you're like, oh, I really should have, should <laughs> have read that. Should have read that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so with that in mind, Elaine, I know you've been looking in a bit to the, to the actual policy differences between the contenders. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, could you tell us what you found? Yeah, well, I mean, as Richard mentioned, so I think with both candidates in in this case and with most election is is the candidates seem to dominate the news agenda, but the the policies really rouse the same level of media attention. So what Mm. I thought I'd do uh, for, for today's podcast is take a look at the candidates' websites to learn more about their policies. Now, 
Biden clearly has more funding. The website is very slick. It outlines policies, but I didn't really have the same level of luck with Trump's website. So the first couple of tries, I couldn't get past a contribution advert where I could have my name displayed on the screen during the final presidential debate. So after about four or five times, I managed to get onto the website. How much did you pay? (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm, not even, I'm not even going to go there, Rich. I'm just not going to go there. I hope you didn't use your uh, research funding to, to, to pay for that one. <laughs> but anyway, when, I'm, when I eventually managed to get onto the website, interestingly, there's, there's no section at all on policy, but there is a section mm. on promises that were kept. So all this basically does is list all the things that Trump has achieved in his last four years in office. But again, a distinct lack of policy there. So what I managed to find, I'll go with the kind of big subjects. I mean, I could be here all day with this, so I'm just going to hint on a Mm -hmm. few. So we've got COVID. So Biden's policy is a lot more clearer on this. So an extensive plan on a a public health response. So wide availability of free testing, increased production of PPE, a stimulus package. Trump's strategy is somewhat different, which... Even at this point, even after contracting COVID, he still doesn't have a policy plan for his second term on COVID. (laughs) Other than just mentioning what he mentioned in the debate, which is opening back up the country and having a vaccine available. But even health experts are saying that this is very unlikely and there's no actual strategy in place for opening up the country. So just on the COVID one. So I I was looking at this similar stuff and I found his, yeah, his uh, second term agenda fighting for you, which uh, basically was launched at, instead of the Republicans having a, a platform, which yeah. they normally would. And his COVID plan uh, is four bullet points. Uh, develop a vaccine by the end of 2020 and return to normal in 2021. Uh, make all critical medical supplies or healthcare workers free and refill stockpiles and prepare for future pandemics. So, you know, how, how dare you say he doesn't have a plan? He's got... <laughs> Vaccine 2020, back to normal 21. That is that is the perfect plan, right? These are like my to-do lists for work on a daily basis. I have all these grand ideas about what I'm going to do, but I'm never going to actually achieve them. So, I mean, it sounds good in theory, right? Yeah. I'm sorry, sorry to cut across. I no, just that's yeah, okay. I have to get that in. Four-point okay. plan, right? <laughs> well, moving on now to climate change, because I think this is where there's kind of massive disparities be- between both of these candidates. So we know that back in 2017, Trump, the Trump administration set the tone for the view on the environment by pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, rolling back Obama's environmental policy. So I think it's fair to say, I think the tone that we've got is Trump is pretty much a, a climate change skeptic. And again, perhaps this is a reason why there's no formal climate change plan from the administration. I think what he has mentioned, and maybe this is, you know, that overestimating this to-do list is maybe increasing drilling for oil and gas and rolling back maybe further uh, environmental protections. Now, Biden, in contrast, believes that climate change is real, will immediately rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement if he becomes president. Um, He's also set an agenda on reaching net zero emissions by 2050 and Mm -hmm. proposing bans or leases of oil and gas drilling on public public lands. But I think it's fair to say then that Biden is much more invested in helping the environment. I think that's probably part of the reason why the prestigious US journal Science has actually backed Biden in its first endorsement in 175 years. 
Um, wow. I don't know whether mm. that's a really, you know, a reflection on Biden, but I think it's maybe more of a conversation about how Trump is handling science and the environment. Economy, Trump has laid out a plan for a second term in, in terms of huge job creation, and Biden has done exactly the same. And that is also tied to changes in the environment as well. So this, I think it's the 1.3 trillion infrastructure plan that, again, is mm-hmm. related to net zero gas emissions. So I think even though their strategies are slightly different, they're very much keen on keeping jobs within America, within, you know, the central aims of both candidates. As we talked about with healthcare as well, Trump wants to repeal Obamacare, Biden wants to protect it. And again, Trump has this idea of repealing Obamacare, but there is no clear clear strategy of, of what that actually looks like. So I know there are plenty more that I can talk about, but just to kind of give a quick summary uh, of what I've looked at so far is that Biden takes this traditional approach of incorporating policies of intent in areas of you know major influence, such as the economy and healthcare. And I know that wasn't looked at in much detail in the debate, but it's much clearer on his website, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's been interesting throughout this campaign is that there hasn't been much of an opportunity for the media to question Biden about these particular policies. As, as Richard yeah. mentioned, we you know the tone of you know horse race and policy coverage. This isn't just an issue that's been raised by right-wing media, but also British broadcasters like Sky and their journalists on the campaign trail. So this is where Trump is very different. So Trump readily makes himself available for fields and questions from journalists. But mm-hmm. I think, as we know, these press conferences, events are tied very much to the ideology of Trumpism. And so, you know, what he's created and crafted over the last four years. So a specific focus on him, what he's done well, appealing to that populist base. But again, very little in the way of detail on specific policies. Yeah. And, you know, uh, again, I for me, it's it, Biden is so lucky he's up against Trump, yeah. as far as I can tell. <laughs> But for me, uh, one thing I've noticed, I know Richard was sort of saying over time, and especially in the States, uh, policy coverage is, is lower. I, 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 but you also said the politicians are increasingly reluctant to answer on policy questions. Yeah. And I think what's happened is it might have been the Brexit referendum. It might have been the Trump election. Politicians have realized that policy promises are just a political liability. None of the mm-hmm. voters read them. Journalists read them and ask you awkward questions about them. And so the less detail you can provide about what you're actually going to do, uh, the better. And so, you know, we're starting to see that now. I mean, we saw it with with, with Brexit and uh, the 350 million pounds a week for the NHS. We saw it in 2016 where Hillary Clinton had reams of policy stuff and Donald Trump had very little. Uh, We've seen it here in the uh, UK election where, you know, the Brexit party, for example, ran with no manifesto at all. And they won the, the vote in the European Parliament elections. Conservatives Manifesto 2019 was a a joke with no details in it. And so I think what we're starting to see is politicians realizing, and Joe Biden among them, okay, you can have stuff on your website, just don't talk about it. Policy policy in campaigns is a liability and media don't care about it. And I think traditionally that, you know, the the sort of scholarly critique of all this, Matt, has been, you know, it's it's a journalistic failing, this dearth of policy information. But but it's not just a journalistic failing. Journalists can only report stuff that they're, you know, given. And politicians have done things like stop the daily news conferences in the Mm -hmm. UK, for example. You know, Mm -hmm. the the opportunities to talk about policy are just decreasing every year. So to be fair to the journalist, what else have they got to talk about other than 
polls, who's going to win, who tripped over, who got hit with an egg. You know, it, 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 it's it's difficult, isn't it? You can't make a, a seven-course meal out of a pan of boiling water, can you? <laughs> well, I hope for our uh, podcast purposes next week, someone trips over, someone gets hit by an egg, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, all sorts of things happen because they do drive listenership. Anyway, um, we've kind of reached the end of the podcast. Another depressing ending. That seems to be a specialist <laughs> line that we're that we're developing. Uh, so I would just like to to end by saying thank you to the sponsors of this podcast, the Cherish Digital Economy Centre at Swansea University, uh, and to thank you all for listening. And uh, we look forward to the, the run into the campaign uh, with you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.